So this morning, uh, we're coming to the closing section of this upper room discourse, as it's called, of Jesus. Jesus and his disciples on the night of his betrayal. Um, They're in the upper room. It, It really started when Judas left the room. So Judas has gone out. He is even now meeting with the chief priests and and Pharisees and maybe now gathering the guards to be on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, So Jesus really began his last words, as it were, once Judas left the room. And then uh, the first section ended when the disciples left the upper room. And Jesus said, arise, let us go from here. So the first little section was in that upper room after Judas left and before the disciples left with Jesus. And Jesus spoke in that first section, we remember, about the fact that he's going away. And that his going away, though, is the key to his being with them forever. Um, He's going to be with them physically after the resurrection. He would come and see them. He's going to be with them spiritually through the spirit that he sends to, it, to indwell them. He will be with them always to the end of the age, he says. And then he will be with them ultimately when he comes and receives them to be with himself. So you see all those different aspects of his presence with his disciples. And all of them come about by his going away. So then in the middle section of this discourse, Jesus talks to his disciples, remember, about the true vine and fruit-bearing, and being hated by the world, and then about the work of the Holy Spirit in relation to the world, and then in relation to us. And so the middle section really emphasizes the disciples' life in the world after Jesus has come to them again. So they're still going to be in the world, but Jesus will have come to them. And now, this is how they're to live, bearing fruit in the power of the Spirit um, and, and living, living in love towards one another. So now we come this morning to the closing section of this discourse. And Jesus is now going to return again to the themes that he started with. I'm going away. Um, and I'm going away so that I can be with you forever. So he comes back now, as it were, and we're really, we're really reaching, uh, just so we, we, we keep perspective, we're going to come next chapter to the Lord's prayer that he prays. And then after that, it's going to be the trial, the, the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. So that's where we are. As we come then to the last section of this last words of Jesus, as it were, um, we start in verse 16 of chapter 16. And Jesus says, a little while, and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So I I thought about asking this this question, why does Jesus talk like that? And in in many ways, we've already answered that question. Um, but, But let's explore that just a minute, because we know from reading Matthew and Mark and Luke, that Jesus has told his disciples very clearly, like Jesus has actually said, uh, the Son of Man, and they knew he was talking about himself, the Son of Man is going to be crucified. And then on the third day, he's going to be raised up. How much more clear can you get? So, why doesn't Jesus say here, a little while and I will be crucified. 
and again a little while, and I'll be raised up from the dead. Wouldn't that be clear? Now, maybe on the eve of his crucifixion, it's the very eve of, it's, I mean, it's, it's hours away now. Maybe that plain talk would do more harm than good, since the disciples still don't understand. But I think there's another reason, and I, let's look at that again. He says, a little while, and you will no longer see me. Now, if we wanted Jesus to say, a little while, and I will be crucified, we'd miss the point. We'd miss the point of what Jesus is saying. He says, and there's a reason he says it, you will no longer see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. He uses two different Greek words for see. So we say see both times, but it says a little while, and you will no longer theoreo me. And then again, a little while, and you will, and you will horao me. Two entirely, not even related words. They don't mean different things. It's, but, but it's almost as though Jesus is emphasizing the seeing by just picking two different words for seeing. Seeing has been a pretty big theme in John. So on the one hand, obviously seeing can be pretty literal. Like, you're, like if, if you looked up and you saw me, you would see me, and I, I see all of you, there you are. But, but seeing in John is often a spiritual seeing. It's a discerning. It, it's a perceiving of, of spiritual realities, of things we can't see with these eyes. So John chapter 6, verse 40 says, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. What is the seeing there? John 14, verse 7, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Now there's a physical element if you if you've seen the physical jesus uh, but you have to see more than just the physical jesus not every passerby walking down the road when they saw jesus saw the father right so there's a spiritual sight that we need that john talks about a lot sometimes the literal physical seeing represents a deeper spiritual perception so uh, in particular john 146 nathaniel said to philip Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Now he's saying, come and look. Look with your own eyes. But there's something deeper behind that. It's like when Jesus said to the disciples of John, when they came, and Jesus said, what do you want? And they said, we want to, where are you staying? And Jesus said, come and see. Well, yeah, they would see the room where he was staying. But do you think think that's all Jesus had in mind? Yeah, come and see the room where I'm lodging. No, when Jesus said, come and see, he was inviting them to come and see more. To come and see, truly. John eleven forty. Jesus said to Martha, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Well, when Martha saw her brother raised up from the dead with her physical eyes, she would see the glory of God. But Jesus is talking about more than that. John 17, 24, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me. Obviously, if we're with Jesus where he is, in our resurrected bodies, we'll see his glory. Uh, But we'll not just see his glory with our eyes, but with, with our hearts. 
We will perceive his glory and revel in it. Sometimes the literal physical seeing is an ironic reference to spiritual blindness. So look at John 2, 23. He says, now, now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, believed seeing his signs, which he was doing. But in the very next verse, we know what they didn't really believe, and they didn't really see. So we read in John chapter 9. This is the main section on seeing in John. Jesus heard that they had put the man who was formerly blind out of the synagogue. And so finding him, Jesus said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him. Saying that to a man who was formerly blind holds a lot of weight. But Jesus is also giving it a spiritual weight. You have both seen him. And he is the one who was talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. He saw. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, for judgment, I came into this world so that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. I just want to point out, physical sight is an amazing gift. Right? The fact that we use our eyes every day of our lives and look around and perceive our surroundings and the beauties of God's creation. Physical sight is an amazing gift. But let us, let us truly believe and understand that spiritual sight is a far more amazing gift. Because, brothers and sisters, we were blind. We could not see. And now we see. I was blind, we say in the in the hymn, but now I see. To see not only with our physical eyes, but with the eyes of our heart. So now let's come back. When Jesus says, a little while, and he doesn't say, a little while and I'll be crucified. He says, a little while and you will no longer see me. What's he saying? He means that the disciples, first of all, will no longer see him physically because he's dead and buried in the tomb. That's, that's why they can't see him. Physically, he's dead and buried. But that inability to see Jesus physically is going to represent a far deeper darkness that's going to descend on the disciples. Okay, you will no longer see me. When Jesus is in the tomb and the disciples don't see him physically, what, what's going to happen at that moment? The disciples are going to think Jesus wasn't the Messiah. They're going to think that everything they thought they saw is now an illusion. What was all that? Jesus' fleshly weakness will seem so complete in death as to seem that Jesus has been utterly defeated. Now, we just know Jesus wasn't defeated. Right? But there's going to be a, just a few hours in the history of the world when the disciples are going to think that the Messiah that God sent into the world was defeated. In your handout, for a little while they will be completely blinded to who Jesus was. See, when Jesus says, a little while, and you will no longer see me. That's, that's what he's talking about. Physical, but behind that, 
is a spiritual darkness that they would descend into. And it's against that backdrop then that we can understand what Jesus says next. And again a little while, and you will, using a different Greek word now, and you will see me. What does Jesus mean there? They're going to see him, actually, physically. He's going to rise from the dead. He's going to come out of the tomb. And they're going to see Jesus face to face after his resurrection. But this seeing of Jesus physically is going, to, is, is, is going to be a picture of a deeper spiritual insight that they're going to have. They're not going to see him like they saw him before. When the disciples see a resurrected Jesus, then all the, all the scales fall off their eyes like Paul. right? All the scales, they just fall off their eyes immediately. And the veil is removed of Jesus' fleshly weakness. It's taken away. And they will see that, ah, here's the one who triumphs over death. Not the one defeated by death, but the one who triumphs over death. This is what they will see. So there's two layers of meaning in these words. Two layers that though they are bound up together, the physical and the spiritual. A little while. And you will no longer see me. And again a little while and you will see me. Aren't you glad he didn't say in a little while I'll be crucified. In a little while I'll be raised from the dead. It's not what he meant. Verses 17 to 18. Some of the disciples then said to one another. What is this he is telling us? A little while and you will see me. And again a little while and you will not see me. And because I go to the Father. So they were saying, what is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Yes, the disciples are lost. We would have been too. Notice how they add in a previous quote from Jesus. And this kind of baffled me at first. Um, But but when I realized it was a quote from just a couple verses earlier, then it began to make sense. Notice how they add, what is this he says? Because I go to the Father. What? Just a moment ago, Jesus said, the advocate will convict the world concerning its righteousness. Here's the key phrase. Because I go to the Father, and you will no longer see me. Okay? So, they're confused, and I can see why. Here's what's going on. In that verse, the no longer seeing is a good thing. It's a positive thing. You're not going to see me because I'm going to be enthroned at the right hand of God. Right? And the disciples are no longer going to see Jesus as they had seen him before in his fleshly weakness because he's going to be enthroned in power. That's good. You no longer see me, but that's a good thing. Here, the no longer seeing is a bad thing. It's negative. It's sorrowful. So it's not the result of Jesus going to the Father, but, and I know that his death and burial was the the way to the Father, okay? But, but he's seeing it as a negative thing. It's the result of Jesus dead and buried in a tomb. Okay, that's why you're not going to see me. And then the disciples will no longer see Jesus as the Messiah because to all outward appearances, he's defeated. Death has got him. So what's happening here is the disciples are mixing up. They're mixing these two sayings of Jesus, the positive and the negative. 
the no longer seen because Jesus is glorified at God's right hand and the no longer seen because Jesus is dead and buried in a tomb. And what's worse, what makes matters more difficult is that they're mixing up the positive and the negative and they don't have any understanding of either one of those things. Can you begin to appreciate just how lost they were and how lost we would have been? So what they hear Jesus saying is this. Okay, disciples, a little while and you'll no longer see me because I'm going to the Father. Uh, And then a little while and you'll see me because I'm coming back from the Father. And they're thinking to themselves, why go to the Father and come right back? What's this? What is this he says? A little while. We don't know what he's talking about. How wonderful it is that today, brothers and sisters, we know what he was talking about. We know. So Jesus knew that they were wishing to question him, and he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this, that I said a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you. Now see, Jesus doesn't emphasize the little while part. That's that's what the disciples were getting hung up on. He says, no, you got the wrong part. Truly, truly, I say to you, that you will cry and lament but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Okay. A little while, and you will no longer see me, right? And what's going to happen? Because you don't see me, you're going you're to be crying and lamenting. So we know he's talking about the tomb right here. Because we don't see Jesus either. But that's because he's in heaven. And so we're not crying and lamenting. You're going to cry and lament, Jesus says, because I'm going to be in the tomb. You're going to think I'm defeated and conquered by death. Everything you thought you had seen, and they hadn't, you know, we we know they didn't see everything. But everything you thought you saw, you're going to look back and you're going to say, it was an illusion. What, what What was that all about? What, 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 what happened? Can you even begin to fathom? how that must have been for them. For a little while, you're going to be totally blinded to who I am. All that you thought I was, you won't even know if I, if I am. You will no longer see me. The, words for, the Greek words for cry and lament. Um, the reason this translation uses the word cry uh, is because cry has the idea of making sound. And that's what the Greek word means. It means, it means giving expression to your grief with, with, um, with wailing. Mourning is another word in great distress. And so those two words are strong words, but, but hey, uh, when Jesus puts them together, he's, if he just said, you will weep, that would be strong. If he just said, you will lament, that would be strong. But Jesus says, you're going to... Weep and cry and you're going to lament and mourn. Those two words together, he puts them together. That's even stronger than ever. Because they will think Jesus is defeated. But the world will rejoice. For the same reason the disciples are crying. So one event, the disciples are crying, the world is rejoicing. Because they'll think Jesus has been silenced by death. Oh. That would be a pit of darkness. Right? As I as put it here, there had never been 
and there never would be again a kind of crying and lamenting like the disciples were about to experience. Now we're going we're gonna to talk at the end of this sermon about the fact that we cry and we lament, right? We experience these things in the world that cause us pain. But no one ever, ever again in the world since or before that event ever had a kind of crying and lamenting like they experienced. There had never been and never would be again that, that kind of hopeless pit of despair. Because what you have here is uh, centuries of hope and expectation that, that seem to be dashed. Now, did the disciples think that God wasn't faithful? Did the disciples think there might be another Messiah coming? Who knows what they thought? What, can you, what would you have thought? Right? They would, never, they would no longer see Jesus. That's, that's what I want us to come to. Their despair arose would arise from the fact that they could not see Jesus. Not just physically, but not understanding who he was. The light of the world would be taken away. And they would genuinely, honestly feel themselves in the darkness of a night that had no end. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will cry and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. A little while and you'll no longer see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. So again, let me ask you, what's the joy? What is this joy that he tells them they're going to have? It's the joy of seeing Jesus. That's it. But not just seeing Jesus as they saw him before. Right. We understand now, even if the disciples can't understand, that Jesus is saying this, you will see me no longer as one susceptible to death, susceptible to suffering, but as the one who's triumphed over death forever and ever and ever. How do you see Jesus? How do you see him? The one triumphant over death, the death that we all must endure unless the Lord comes back first, but the one triumphant over those things, the one who can no longer die. He says, you will see me, you will perceive in your handout, you'll perceive me in my true saving power and glory. So I want to ask you this question. Could Jesus have spared the disciples all this crying and lamenting? Honestly, honestly, work that through in your head. Could he have spared them the crying and lamenting, the anguish and, and the suffering? Yes, but only temporarily. If he had refused the cross. And only temporarily. <laughs> For those first disciples, think about it like this. The only way to the ultimate joy was through the deepest sorrow. And we would always like to find a detour. We would always like to find, even if it's a longer way, at least an easier way. But this, in this case, was in fact the only way to the ultimate joy through the deepest sorrow. In your handout, the only way to the highest, and I say mountain plateau purposefully, because the highest mountain peak evokes imagery of emotional highs. I'm on the mountain peak. I'm talking about a, a mountain plateau. 
Jesus is going to say, and no one will take your joy away from you. You can't stay on the mountain peak, but you, can, you can't walk on the mountain peak, but you can walk on the mountain plateau. And that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about going for, from the deepest valley of anguish, the only way to the mountain plateau of joy is through that valley of anguish. There's no other way. If you want to get there, you, got, you have to go through the anguish. So Jesus continues in verses 21 to 22. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has sorrow. And some, again, obviously, some, some women who've gone through labor might say, I don't know if sorrow is the best word, but maybe a better way to translate would be mental distress. Sometimes the physical pain of something, oftentimes, causes a mental distress and anguish. Because her hour has come, but when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the suffering or no longer accounts it of, of the weight you know, that we would account it if we were, had a kidney stone or something. Because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Now we know, especially in the days before anesthetics, the only way for a woman to know the joy of holding her own newborn baby was to know first the sorrow and the anguish of childbirth. And furthermore, and this is, this is a beauty that I've had just to think on this, has been really helpful for me. It is actually through the birth pains of labor that a child is born into the world, right? So each painful contraction brings the baby nearer to delivery. You've you got to have the contraction to push the baby, Right? But that contraction is painful. The more intense and the more painful the contractions become, that's a good sign. It's a good sign it's getting worse. Because that means the baby is closer. But that doesn't mean that it's not worse. And then at the end, a different, different, as I spoke to my wife, a different kind of pain, right? The moment of delivery when that child first enters into the world. And so in this way, here's here's a paradox. It is the pain itself that brings forth joy. So in the Old Testament, the imagery of a woman in the pain and anguish of hard labor was often used to describe how men and nations are acting when God's judgments are being poured out on them. So, Jeremiah chapter 4, I heard a cry as of a woman in labor, the anguish as of one giving birth to her first child, the cry of the daughter of Zion gasping for breath, stretching out her hand saying, Ah, woe is me, for I faint before murderers. It's as though she's in labor, um, labor pains, right? Suffering the judgments of God. Jeremiah 6, our hands are limp. Anguish has seized us. Pain as of a woman in childbirth. Now, just as the anguish of a woman in labor is followed by the joy of a child born into the world, 
So the sufferings of God's people, their sufferings of God's judgments, would be followed by their experience of his salvation. Now watch this, Jeremiah chapter 30. Thus says the Lord, I have heard a sound of terror, of dread. There is no peace. Ask now and see if a male can give birth. Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? Why have all faces turned pale? Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it. And it is the time of Jacob's distress. But he will be saved from it. It shall come about on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off their neck and will tear off their bonds and strangers will no longer make them their slaves. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Now here's the question that we have to ask ourselves. How can this be? How can the joy of salvation follow the anguish and the sorrow of judgment. Now we know when a woman gives birth, uh, the joy of seeing her baby follows the anguish of the labor pains. But, but how can salvation for the people follow the judgments of God for their sin? When they're in, they're, they're pan, they're in labor, they're in the labor pains under the judgments of God as it were, and then follows salvation. But what happened? Was, did they give birth to a baby? Through this? Did they bring salvation into the world? How can Israel, through its own suffering of labor pains, ever bring forth children into the world? How can they do that? We'll read in Isaiah chapter 26. O Lord, they sought you in distress and anguish. They could only whisper a prayer. Your chastening was upon them. As the pregnant woman approaches the time to give birth, she writhes and cries out in her labor pains. Thus were we before you, O Lord. We were pregnant. We writhed in labor, experiencing your judgments, and yet called to live as your people in the world. We writhed in labor. We gave birth, as it seems, only to wind. We could not accomplish deliverance from the, for the earth, nor were inhabitants of the world born. Can you imagine going through labor only to give birth to nothing? There's nothing? Then Isaiah continues. After, after we hear that Israel was in the labor pains and suffering the judgments of God and brought no children into the world, then Isaiah says, Your dead will live Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth. The earth will give birth to the departed spirits. So there will be a birth. Israel, through its own labor pains and suffering of the judgments of God, could not give birth to a redeemed people. They couldn't do it. But what Israel could not do through its own sufferings, through its own labor pains, God would do somehow miraculously. And we see that in the imagery of a people resurrected from the dead, of the earth giving birth to the departed spirits. And brothers and sisters, by the way, that's us, the church. In Isaiah 66, Israel 
Here's another image. Israel actually successfully gives birth. No, wait a minute. I thought Israel was in labor pains and gave birth to wind. They didn't, they didn't bring forth any children. Now we're going to read in this verse that Israel successfully gives birth. But, ah, there's a catch. There's a catch. Without ever experiencing the pains of labor. Now, we've got anesthetics. We've tried to figure out ways around this reality. But, at least back in that day, and I'm not saying stuff about anesthetics are good or bad or whatever. I'm just saying. Now, at least back in that day, there wasn't even the option. And there, so there was not a way to have children without pain. You, you couldn't do it. But now we're going to read a passage in which Israel has children without pain. How can that be? Isaiah 66. Before she travailed, before she even went into labor, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. Who has heard such a thing? Indeed. Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation, that's the new covenant church. Uh, Paul, Paul says that this nation to be born out of Israel is the church. Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord? Or shall I, who gives delivery, shut the womb, says your God? So here we go. On the one hand, the suffering of Israel, pictured as the pains of a woman in labor, will be followed by salvation. Now, now, we often think if something is followed by, by something, then it must have caused that, right? So if Israel suffers and then comes salvation, did Israel's suffering cause the salvation? No, just because it followed it. But God kept saying, no, judgment will be followed by salvation. So was there a cause and effect? No, no. It will not be in your handout through Israel's suffering that this salvation comes. It will not be through Israel's labor pains. They give birth to wind. That a redeemed people is born into the world. So then here's the question. How can the Israel that writhes and cries out in her labor pains give birth only to wind, while, on the other hand, the Israel that experiences no labor pains at all gives birth in one day to an entire redeemed people? How can that be? And the answer is, the Messiah would take on himself all the labor pains of Israel. So that through his suffering and anguish, a redeemed people would be born into the world. We are his offspring. And this will be all the offspring of Zion in a single day. All throughout John, we should probably know by now that the word our refers to when God's salvation comes. And it especially refers to the, the, um, the anguish labor pains of Jesus in his suffering and death, the hour of his 
the hour of his um, anguish. So Jesus says here in John, coming back to our text, whenever a woman is in labor, and, and, and all this imagery, all this Old Testament imagery has got to be informing this illustration. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has sorrow because her hour, and in John's gospel, we see that word hour, and immediately we think Jesus' hour. And again, I want to be careful. This is not a, an allegory. Jesus isn't saying, I'm the woman, right? But, but, but he's using the illustration for us to draw some comparisons. Her hour has come, but when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the suffering because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Now let's see it again. It's the pain and the suffering and the anguish itself that brings forth joy. And for the mother, what's the joy? It's the joy of seeing her baby, her child. Now we have a question. I assume you might be asking this question. That sounds like we're talking about the joy of Jesus. But aren't we actually talking here about the joy of the disciples? That sounds like we're talking about the anguish of Jesus, the labor pains he endured on the cross, suffering the judgments of God. But aren't we talking about the sorrow and the anguish of the disciples when they no longer see Jesus because he's in the tomb? Are we mixing these two things? Jesus continues now in verse 22. He does this, and uh, this is amazing. Watch what happens here. Verse 22. Therefore... You also, you also, like the woman or like me? I don't, I don't know here. You also have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your heart, and your heart will rejoice. And no one will take your joy away from you. All right, until now. Jesus, and we've heard it like three times, remember? Jesus said it to them. Then the disciples repeated what he said amongst themselves. And then Jesus repeated what they were saying, which was repeating what he said in the first place. Three times we have heard Jesus speak of them no longer seeing him and then seeing him. Three times. But now instead of saying, watch, I mean, didn't we expect him to say, but you will see me again. And your heart will rejoice. Right? That, isn't that why they're going to rejoice? Because they see him. It's not what Jesus says. I will see you again. And your heart will rejoice. The unquenchable joy of the disciples. And unquenchable is not just for dramatic fancy word. I mean, unquenchable means it can't be taken away from them. That joy is going to be rooted not ultimately in them seeing Jesus, but Jesus seeing them. How is that? Well, if we understand our Old Testament imagery, we'll know the answer. Like the sorrow and the anguish of a woman in labor gives birth to her joy in seeing her child. So the sorrow and the anguish of Jesus in suffering the righteous judgments of God will give birth to his joy 
in seeing his children. In seeing now the disciples, Jesus is going to see the disciples in a sense in a different way than he'd seen them prior to the cross. He will see them now as his own redeemed children. As the ones that he was in labor with through the cross, suffering the judgments of God, and then in the tomb, and then rising from the dead, and with him now coming into existence a whole new creation. All his offspring, all his children. And so listen again. And by the way, when Jesus sees the disciples as his own redeemed offspring, the disciples are then going to see Jesus that they'd not seen him before. As the one who had brought them into existence. As his redeemed children. So listen to prophet Isaiah chapter 53. But the Lord was pleased to crush Jesus, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see. And when Jesus says in in John, when he switches it up and he says, but I will see you again. I, 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 I cannot see how all this imagery was not there in Isaiah 53. is not informing this. It says, he will see his offspring. Jesus will see his offspring. God will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. Now watch this. As a result of the anguish, right? Jesus had to go through the deepest anguish to come out to the highest joy. There was no detour. There was no longer way. There was no other way. He had to go through the anguish to come out to that highest joy. And as a result then of that anguish of his soul, he will see, it says again, and be satisfied by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. And so the joy of the disciples will be their I I, I was trying to figure a better word. I'll use a different one in a minute. Maybe it'll help. But it'll be their reciprocation of the joy of Jesus. What is our joy? It's our reciprocating of the joy of Jesus. Jesus seeing us. And us in turn seeing Jesus. No one... No one would ever take that joy away from them. Not even, not even, by the way, as it says in Acts, when the cloud received Jesus physically out of their sight, right? Did their joy leave them when they couldn't see him like that anymore? No, their joy stayed and it could not be taken away from them. And that's why we too can have the unquenchable joy of those first disciples. We haven't yet seen Jesus literally and physically, have we? But, and I say we haven't yet. Because one day we will. But we have seen him through their eyewitness testimony as the one who has triumphed over death. And now our joy in seeing him is just the reflex of his joy in seeing us. You didn't look at him and rejoice because that was just you. We look at him and rejoice because he has looked at us. Because he has seen us and rejoiced. Because he went through the labor pains of childbirth. 
And we are his offspring. After describing how Zion would give birth to a nation in one day, without even ever experiencing the pains of labor, and that's because Jesus would take their labor pains upon himself, Isaiah says, immediately following that whole picture of, of giving birth, he says, be joyful with Jerusalem, rejoice for her, all you who love her, be exceedingly glad with her, all you who mourn over her. Then, you will see this and your heart will be glad. We are the offspring Jesus brought into the world in and through the labor pains he suffered when he endured the grief and anguish of all God's righteous judgments. And so we do not weep and lament, do we? Do we? Right? I don't want to just tell you we don't. I want to ask you. We do not weep and lament, do we? We are not sorrowful, but joyful. And now one, and no one, and now no one, and no thing can ever take that joy away from us. Not even when Jesus was taken away in the cloud because he sent his spirit with us, right? He's still with us, we know, and in through his spirit. And he's preparing that place, and in fact has prepared that place already through his ascension into heaven. And he will come and receive us to himself. And so our joy, our joy has been provided for from beginning to end. Now, here's, here's the thing. And this is where there's such a beauty here. If through the labor pains of the Messiah, children, here's the children. We are the children. If we have been born into the world through the labor pains of the Messiah, then we know God's salvation is here. That's why we're always joyful. And yet we also know we still have pain and suffering in this world. And Jesus isn't oblivious to this, right? He hasn't forgotten this. He's going to say in only a couple verses in this very same chapter, in the world you have and will have tribulation. That's the same word for the woman suffering the anguish of childbirth. Now, it doesn't always mean childbirth, but I'm just saying it's the same word. So you will have suffering. You will have anguish. How many of us have experienced still suffering and anguish in this world? That's, that's everyone who's born. Um, but take courage. I have overcome the world. So now we know that our suffering, what is our suffering? Okay, Jesus did this. Jesus went through labor the labor of God's judgments, and brought us into the world. Now then, we still suffer. What's that? The Bible says that our suffering is a sharing in the finished sufferings of Christ. And that means then that our suffering is never fruitless. Again, again, talking with Andrea too, I mean, she was describing other things that were just as painful as labor. And in fact, more painful, right? And then labor, in a sense, because you knew there was no joy at the end of it. You knew those pains and sufferings were not bringing forth anything of joy. But now because our sufferings are all a sharing in the finished, completed sufferings of Jesus, therefore our sufferings are never fruitless. 
It's just the pains of labor. Now, I say just the pains of labor in a sense that, that we, we wouldn't want to say it like that because it is the pains of labor. It's anguish. It's sorrow. But at the other, on the other hand, if we're comparing the suffering of labor with the suffering of giving birth to wind, to nothing, then, then fruitless suffering to fruitful suffering, there's a big difference, right? And so we can say, of all our suffering, not tritely, it's just the pains of labor before we too experience the birth of resurrection. Now again, here, and if you want to look at some Hosea chapter 13, Hosea uses the imagery, uh, it appears that he uses the imagery more of, of, of the actual baby in the womb experiencing the labor, all right, and not presenting himself at the opening of the womb. That was the analogy there. And and here, we have a bit of the same picture. It's as though we're in labor. But, but whatever we give birth to is not really the weed that did it, right? It's God through Jesus' labor pains. So, the Apostle Paul says in Acts chapter 14, of all our sufferings, he says, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. There's not a detour, there's not a longer way. And yet, on the other hand, neither are those tribulations just the obstacle in the, in the path, right? We can look at the sufferings and say, oh, that's just in my way, and, and unfortunately it's there, so I've got to get through it. No, Paul is saying that is the path. It's not an obstacle in the path. It is the path. And, and, and it's the only path, and you must go through that to get to the joy So through the tribulations we come to the kingdom and to joy. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, for momentary light affliction, that's the same word for anguish that Jesus used, is producing for us. That's that's strange to us, right? It's not just like some reason we got to go through all this stuff. No, that is the way to get to an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And if we ask brothers and sisters why that is, we could give a number of answers. But I'll just say the preeminent first answer is just look to Jesus. Was there a way for him to get to the joy other than through the anguish? Our story is his story now. We share share in his sufferings that we might come through the pains of labor to, to that joy of resurrection life with him. Listen to Paul now in Romans chapter 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Uh, Remember the woman who forgets or no longer remembers the sufferings? That's what kind of Paul is doing here. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans. Jesus is not groaning. He already finished the the suffering of, of the labor pains. 
But the whole creation now groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves suffer the pains of childbirth. Having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves like a woman in labor, waiting eagerly, (laughs) not for the child we bring into the world, but for our own birth, as it were, for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body, right? So what do we say? What do we conclude? Even in our groaning, like the woman in childbirth, we rejoice. And maybe this is where the analogy breaks down. I don't know if the woman in childbirth is rejoicing at all, but we do with a joy that can never be taken away from us. And the reason for this is, well, and Paul Paul says it like this. He says that we are as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. So the reason that we can rejoice even in the labor pains is twofold. Number one, We are the offspring Jesus has already brought into the world. The labor is finished. The child has been given birth to. And he has seen us and rejoiced. And so we see him who sees us. And we rejoice. And so, secondly, now all of our sufferings that we endure still in this world are simply the labor pains before we too are born into his resurrection life. Is there a detour, brothers and sisters? Is there a way around? No. God has laid out the path before us. It holds tribulations, sorrows, but it's just the labor pains that are necessary to get to joy. And the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for for this, this, this beautiful truth that Jesus has has endured the labor pains that that belonged to us and that that through through our own labor pains we could only give birth to wind through our suffering of your wrath and judgments we could accomplish nothing of redemptive value but Jesus endured the labor pains all your judgments and he brought forth a nation in one day an offspring children And he rejoiced to see them. And now we rejoice because he has seen us. And so we see him. And now all of our sufferings, all of our tribulations and anguish and sorrows are are no more than the labor pains that lead to and actually produce and that actually bring forth the ultimate joy. Thank you that knowing these things, 
we have joy now. Joy that no one can take away from us. And we thank you that the joy that we will one day know, um, thank you for what that will be. Lord, we pray that we are filled this week with joy that we truly this week by your spirit see Jesus and rejoice in him and live for him. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.